It's the 25th of January, 1308, in northern France, in the city square. Numerous royalty, including kings, queens, princes, barons, courts, earls, and dukes, were encamped in canvas tents to celebrate the wedding of Edward II of England and the 12-year-old Isabella, the daughter of the French king. Notable attendees included Philip IV of France, and Albert of Habsburg, and King Charles II of Sicily, and Marguerite, the Dowager Queen of England. The absence of Robert the Bruce, the new King of Scotland, was due to his ongoing fight for Scottish independence from England. Over the next 20 years, these monarchs would play a significant role in shaping the course of events in Northern Europe, with conflicts, alliances, and power struggles occurring in Scotland, England, Flanders, France, and Germany. This period saw French invasions, recognition of Bruce's rule in Scotland, a succession struggle in Germany, and Isabel's return to England with an invading army, leading to her husband's abdiction in favor of their son. Despite these further developments, the most remarkable aspect of the wedding ceremony was the unusual weather. While northern France typically experienced milder January temperatures, the attendees endured freezing conditions. This cold snap was a part of a broader climate change affecting Europe, with potentially dire consequences for millions of lives in the years to come. The common misconception in history is that humanity's worst disasters occur within a clear and defined time frame with a distinct beginning and ending. However, truth often resembles a bridge collapsing, where a brief climax results from forces that have been forming for many years or even centuries. This was precisely the case in Northern Europe during the 14th century. Less than a decade after the wedding, a catastrophic famine, the most extensive and destructive in European history, struck millions of people. While it appeared to be caused by an isolated and unpredictable weather event such as summer storms and freezing winters, its true origins were incredibly complex. A mix of climate, trade, conflict that had been developing for four centuries, affecting tens of millions of lives. To understand this crisis, we must consider a series of interrelated institutions and doctrines, including feudalism, an emerging national identity, and the influence of the Catholic Church. These systems have successfully sustained a growing European population, which had increased from 10 to 40 million over four centuries, thanks in part to a usually mild weather conditions. On this episode of our conversation before the world ends, we'll be venturing back to the 1300s, and we will encounter the first horsemen of the apocalypse to plague this apocalyptic century. We will be looking at the Great Famine of 1315. Hello guys and welcome to today's episode. I'm your host Kareem. <laughs> and welcome to <laughs> And I'm Eamon. <laughs> and welcome to our second uh, recording of the first part of this part of this yeah. episode. Apparently um I spoke too much in the first part <laughs> and Kareem was like no. It got deleted. It got it didn't get it deleted. Went missing, yeah. It went missing. I couldn't yeah. find it. Anyways, so yeah, so this is our re-recording of the first part. The second part is recorded, so if you find the change in tempo or whatever, just know that. Um, listen, so Amy, we're going to have to pretend that um, everything... Yeah, I'll be enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. No, and pretend like, oh, so Amy, have you heard of the Great Famine of 1315? Yeah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, Aim, have you heard of the Great Famine? Never of in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay, so the Great Famine of 1315. Um, <laughs> do you know anything about... 
other popular things in the thirteen. Yeah, I'll tell you about it. So what happened initially in the <laughs> late twenty, the, the weather was consistently warm. <laughs> <laughs> I can take it over from here. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Eamon's gonna give us some insight from the things he knew from back when. No, but uh, I didn't know up until a few days ago the, the details of it. Yeah, so to keep it short and simple, so the Great Famine of 1315 was technically considered like the first catastrophe to attack uh, Europe in the 1300s. Now, the 1300s is usually considered the most apocalyptic shit hit the fan. So, of course, the most popular thing about the 1300s is the bubonic plague or the Black Death. Yeah. The point of this uh, episode was because I wanted to do the Black Death, but then I found out about this famine. So I'm like, huh, that would be kind of interesting to have this episode and then the Black Death, and that would be like our two-parter on the 1300s. The yeah. The 1300s. So because the Great Famine, there is a consensus. Of course, in history, nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything relates to something. Yeah. So when you have a famine in 1300s... It's never sudden. No. It's kind of like the beginning of the turning point that well, would lead to the Black Death. It's always in hindsight when we realize that well, whatever seems sudden, in hindsight later, it's like we could have stopped it. Yeah. Or, even, even to this day, when like uh, earthquake, the earthquake in Morocco, apparently they've been warned multiple times. And the building foundations, about the problem with the building foundations know, in Morocco. And this European, I forget which one, they're like Morocco, there's an earthquake coming to you. Watch out. And of course they didn't care. And no one knew, right? So it's like it's always like in hindsight when you realize like, we could have done something, right? So I feel like this is also one of those cases where now in hindsight, they're like, the science should have been there, but they didn't have the science and technology. Exactly. Uh, they, and like we said, and there's the new phenomenon of uh, climate, like taking climate into account of historical events. Yeah. Like we saw with the Huns, like we saw with the Bronze Age collapsed, uh, like we saw with Tambora. How, it's a modern, uh, it's, cli- climate history is a modern thing, right? Yeah. How, how, how recent has it been? It's a 20th century thing. So, so it's like from the 1900s. Then, no one took climate into anything. Like people took climate, but they never took to the extent how much can climate really affect the course of history. We never, like, for example, when you talk about the Huns, it's always like, oh, they were escaping war and they led to another area where they fought off, right? No one talks about the fact that, like, okay, maybe the weather was a series of droughts and the step. So the Huns decided to move westward, you know what I mean? Yeah. Same thing with the Sea Peoples. No one really understood why the Sea Peoples were just randomly well, attacking everyone. To them, it was random, but then climate history can answer that question. Climate right? is like, yeah, but if you look at the climate then, there was earthquakes, floods, and big droughts. Mi- big, big migrations are always two things, right? Climate, no, three things. Climate, famine, and war. Yeah, yeah. We always focus and, on the war aspect. And maybe the famine, but either or, right? Yeah. Even famine. But when, even, it's always attribute like when crops don't grow, they're like, because it didn't rain. They don't go enough into it. There was a famine. Now we're beginning to understand how much the cli- climate influenced it. And that's why we're talking about the medieval warm period that Amen mentioned in brief. So yeah, so let's start it off, Aim. So part one, the Great Famine. So in the year 1315, Europe faced a dire predicament. There was an incessant amount of rains that persisted throughout the continent, which threatened not only the people's livelihood, but also their very survival. Chronicles from various European regions, including England, Ireland, the Low Countries, Scandinavia, France, and Germany, bore witness to a relentless and torrential downpours that lasted over 100 days or even longer at some places. So we're talking about rains that would not stop for 100 days or more. The rain was so relentless that it hindered the harvesting of wheat and the storage of crops in barns. Uh, seeds rotted in the waterlogged ground. 
And in many places, hay remained submerged for so long that they couldn't be harvested or gathered. Uh, the grain was that was collected or that was able to be collected had been meticulously dried in ovens. But then when you like to be baked for cake, but even then, because of how soggy it was and how out in terrain, there was no neutral like so nutritional value. Just bread, hmm? just carbs, just carbs. No vitamins, nothing. No, no, nothing from the sun. This is because due to the nourishment that would come from the summer sun, right? The sun would give it all its vitamins. The good stuff. The good stuff. The following year, 1316, proved to, uh, proved to be equally calamitous. England experienced such heavy rainfall that according to one account, and I quote, in one year, there could not be found seven days of good weather. Consequently, there was no, almost no grain harvest in 1316, uh, with most of it having perished. In Germany, rain fell during the planting of seeds, during the sprouting, and again during the harvest. So it had no time to, to go through yeah, its cycle. cycle yeah. In Saxony, an overflowing river washed away, washed away 450 villages, along with the inhabitants and livestock. Also, rivers started to flood because of the overflowing, rain. Overflowing, yeah. Meanwhile, Austria, Poland, Hungary faced the looming threat of... the. Uh, <laughs> what does inundation mean? Flooding. Belgium was not spared either. Uh, it experienced incessant rain from June 24th until August, causing uh, granaries to stand nearly empty of flour. Although the rain abated some, somewhat in 1317, Northern Europe continued to face extreme weather conditions up until 1322, uh, with severe winters, storms, and coastal floods affecting regions like eastern England, Normandy, and Flanders. The winter of 1315 and 16 and 1321 and 22 saw the Baltic Sea freezing over, trapping all the ships on ice. However, the harshest winter of all appeared to be 1317 to 1318. Um, this extended period, <clears throat> sorry, this extended period of adver adverse weather conditions left no room for recovery. Families were confronted with grim choices: either endure starvation now and keep the seeds you have for later. Or consume whatever you have for now and then just face the consequences that you might not eat tomorrow. Later, yeah. yeah. Medieval peasants who already operated at subsistence level in normal times typically harvested around two to three grains of wheat for each one sown. So the ratio for like the harvest would be three to one, right? You get yeah, three yeah. to... Uh, for every harvest, you get three whatever. Yeah. Um, so for every seed, you get three uh, grains. grains. Yeah. However, with the heavy rains in 1315 13, 16, it, it reduced this meager yield to a third or even a half in some areas, resulting in as two grains per one sown. But it even got worse because sometimes, like even for example, Bolton, it had a ratio of one to one. Wow. So for every one seed you plant, you gain one Which grain. Which is enough to feed probably one person. Imagine even if you say, like, okay, you planted the seed, but the fact that. Like, having to tow it and having to do this and that is it not it's not even worth the effort to get, that, yeah, to yeah. get just one you're strand you're not to ha eating to have that energy to do it exactly and that's where europe was uh facing at. the problem is you can't rely on your neighbors because they're, they're also all, living day to day they're all, they're all going through it too yeah so during this period europe found itself amid the phenomenon known as the little ice age a protracted era of cooler temperature and unsettled weather that spanned from 1300 to 1850 during this climate shift, glaciers advanced instead of retreating, and many northern forms and settlements had been abandoned. Regions like Greenland witnessed significant changes. Rivers, seas froze over, creating icy barriers that hindered human travel, but provided winter passages for predators. It wasn't until the later decades of the 20th century when the effects of human-made carbon emissions began to manifest. The average temp 
that the average temperatures in the northern hemisphere finally surpassed these highs of the 11th and 12th century. This period was referred to as the medieval warm period, which lasted from 800 to 1300 CE. Medieval to global warming, huh? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's essential to note that although uh, climate skeptics have pointed to the medieval warm period temperatures during the Middle Ages, uh, but it never exceeded those of the 20th century. Like, yeah, it did warm, but never to the extent that it's warming we're today. We're still getting the record hottest mm. summer. Wasn't the last summer the record hottest summer of all time? Yeah, and you see the heat waves are happening all over the world and the yeah. fire, uh, forest burns and all that. So, yeah, it is recorded history stuff. So, But I'm sure at that time it was probably worse. Yeah. Like yeah. the worst of the time. It's always worse until the... Next record, yeah. yeah. The sudden shift in weather patterns around 1315 from a stable to milder climate to a colder, more erratic one was a shock to those living through it. This period marked the onset of, like we said, the Little Ice Age and the occurrence of the Great Famine. Climate historians have used various sources, including descriptions in chronicles, annals, records of grain yields, prices, and timing of grape harvests to trace these historical weather records. So a study using hundreds of narrative sources from France, England, and Northern Italy reconstructed the weather pattern from 1000 CE to 1425, and the studies revealed that the earlier decades of the 14th century ex- experienced ex- exceptionally rainy conditions. However, compared to the predominantly dry weather reported during much of the 13th century, and even the first decade of the 14th, the sudden onset of the heavy rainfall was a shock, because like, it was dry, 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 and then just rain. So the uh, medieval warming wasn't necessarily deemed as a bad thing at the time. If, no, if anything, it created because like it helped what, their yeah their, their farming and everything exactly, and that kind of led to a population explosion too. Climatologists turned to field data to reconstruct temperatures in the northern hemisphere, going back to over thousands of years or more. These records include measurements of tree rings widths from ancient oak trees in Ireland and Germany, as well as isotope variations in ice cores extracted from Greenland's ice caps uh, and the Antarctic. Uh, A graph based on such field data shows the emergence of the Little Ice Age from at around 1300. So you have written data and scientific. From the trees. Mm-hmm. The transition from the medieval warm period to the light to the light ice age is attributed to the change in the fermoline uh, circulation, which is co- cur- uh, commonly known as the Great Ocean Conveyor Belt. The system acts as a heat pump for Europe, which brings warm water from the south. So it's kind of like a pump that brings water from the south up to the north. So you get a nice warm current that comes. If this pump slows down or fails, it results to colder temperatures in Europe. So it's it's the water that kept. Mm-hmm. the warmth going exactly yeah and this water is is located between uh, iceland and greenland at the arctic circle that's where the heart of the pump is so if this slows down which is what's happening with global warming now it's not slowing down it's mm. accelerating exactly to floods and whatnot exactly didn't they just say as well in antarctica there's like plants growing there that shouldn't be yeah yeah that's what happened to global warming yeah climate history has evolved significantly with greater awareness of global warming and climate change's impacts on history like we said, I think we did Tambora, the Huns, the Bronze Age, all affected from climate. Or all, yeah, yeah those three were b- big in climate. We also had the Lisbon earthquake and how that changed climate everything. stuff as well. Yeah, so you kind of have these uh, moments in time that like, we are now beginning to know that, wait, climate is playing a factor in this. It's always been a problem. It's always it's been. It's not a modern issue. Exactly, yeah. But and now we're beginning to realize that like, oh, wait. So these, pe- these so where the sea people have come from could they have been climate now it's a new theory right yeah 
Oh, the Huns. Why would the Huns move? Climate history is giving more credence than archaeological sometimes. Exactly. Now we're beginning to make sense that shit, maybe climate is a good reason. It is better than any reason. As you see now. Perfect explanation mm -hmm. as to why things happen, why people reacted the way they did. And this is one big fear people have now with global warming is that people from the southern parts of the world where the heat's going to get unbearable, they're going to have to start migrating. So these these so climate used to always be overlooked, you know. War, I'm pretty sure in history, war usually is the number one deciding factor for a lot of it's changes. It's always been the most thing that yeah. has history on it, anyway. This brings us to something called the Postan thesis, okay? And it suggests that um, population growth uh, during that during the medieval warm period outstripped food supply, which was the main cause for the 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 famine. This is interesting. Have you ever heard of something called the Malthusian theory? No. So Malthusian theory, which is kind of, in a weird way, was the basis of Thanos and Avengers, is that the population is too much. We need to reduce it to a certain number so everyone could live properly. To keep things balanced? Yeah, to keep a perfect balance. Perfectly balanced is all things should be. The theory is controversial. For sure. You know, and... There's nothing that suggests that that's the problem. I mean, with 7 billion people, we could live on this planet. It's just that the resources are so dramatically shifted to one side of living standard compared to another. Yeah, for sure. But this famine brought up was the basis of the Malthusian theory. So that theory on population being a problem all came about because of the famine. So one dude was studying it. Who came up like who came up with the theory, uh, and he said that if we want to look at look what happened in Europe in the 1300s with the explosion of the population, it broke into a famine war disease. But it wasn't the population; it was the weather. Yeah, yeah, but but the, the that time they thought it was because of population overpopulated caused yeah the famine. yeah the shortage of food was because of that. Yeah, um, how recent was the climate discovery? Uh, this is a 20th century thing. Part two: the years of the famine. So the famine that struck Northern Europe between 1315 to 1321 stands out as the most severe uh, subsistence crisis of the Middle Ages and possibly the entire medieval history. This was not an isolated occurrence as more localized famines continued afflicting Europe, England and France once a decade throughout the rest of the 14th century. So keep in mind that this famine, yeah, sure, we have like a day from 1315 to 1320, yeah. but it would con still continually persist in small pockets throughout the rest of the 1300s. I'm sure once they found resources, they were fed to certain cities ahead of others as well. An English poet named William Langland, writing during the second most significant famine of the 1370s, vividly described it as hunger assaulting waster by inflicting the suffering upon him. Yeah, so another fa widespread famine hit Europe from 1437-1441, affecting both southern and northern regions of Europe as well as eastern and western areas. However... Uh, the Great Famine of early 14th century held a unique place in the collective European memory that every, even a century and 80 years later, during this famine, people would recall back to the famine of 1315. It was like, like the, the famine. The grandfather stories mm -hmm. and yeah. everything too. Because not only was it a city-centric, it was all of Europe. So it's something that all Europe can relate to. By the way, um, that this famine led to us was the main inspiration behind one of the most famous fairy tales. We know from the Grimm brothers. Um, we'll, when we get to the section, we'll talk about it. Okay. But yeah, just keep that in mind. That um, you know those like hmm, interesting chain reaction. 
So chroniclers in Flanders in uh, 1315 and 1316 emphasized the severity of the famine, stating it was an unseen in living memory or unseen and unheard by anyone than, li than living. They said that the death toll uh, was so like, big that it, there was no lack of death and it was the most atrocious and most savage mortality. It was 10 to 15 percent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, while the description reflect the profound impact of the famine on contemporaries, they had no way been anticipating the catastrophic events that would follow from, from the famine in the form of the plague, right? Bruges, Ypres in Belgium showed that between May to October 1316, like we said, these towns lost 5 to 10% of their whole population. Cities in Germany had lost up to 10% of their population. Uh, in England also, also indicate high percentage of mortality for inherits, which is called death taxes were paid by peasants to their various manors in Hampshire, Berkshire, Somerset, or to the Bishop of Winchester, suggesting a mortality rate of between 10%. Between What's a death tax? So a death tax, and this is a, this is um, seethe at this, or like get so heated. So you're a peasant and you passed away. Now you owe a debt to your lord, to your landlord for uh, dying. Okay, so then the family have to pay it. So off. the family would either pay it off by giving out the best harvest, the best, yes, the best I, animal. I that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's Better. the most disgusting thing I've ever so read. It's like uh, almost like inheriting the debt. It, no, it's like you die. It's, you pass on the debt. To it's not even that. Imagine it's like a tax for saying, um, okay, who's gonna work for me? You have to pay up your. Yeah, even after life. Is that so, like, the two biggest writers of famine before the 20th century were Malthusian uh, theorists who believed that it was a population, like, oh, look, there's a, there's, this is the legitimacy of population decline. We need to decline the population. And uh, Marxists. Those were the two most prominent writers about the famine. Back then, no one really focused on them but them too because, again, Marxists used the example of feudalism. Look how the way the landlords were treating their peasants. So they used this as a good way to discuss class issues back when, serfdom days. So that's the death tax. So you pretty much, you die. Uh, your family have to give up like the best cattle you had just to satisfy your landlord. Uh, the deaths during the Great Famine were well significant and likely two or three times higher than any, uh, than in a normal non-famine years, were probably not sufficient to, to prevent Europe's pre-plague population from recovering with relatively quickly. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that Europe will experience population growth after dec in decades following the famine. So it kind of was moving up and then got hit back with the plague. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a town called Hilsowen, uh, which had one of the highest mortality rates during the famine. Uh, actually, after the famine, marriage rates increased dramatically in the decades following, uh, specifically in the 1320s, so 30s, and 40s. It seems like it's an extreme where you have an extreme decline, but to recover it is fast as well. Yeah, and of course, this was thrown by the marriage taxes, which was, uh, so what's a marriage tax? It was taxes paid by the peasants to their lord. <laughs> so they get married? <laughs> yeah. You see how it's such a messed up uh, system, bro. Um, yeah, so this is how we know that marriage is jumped up because of the records. Uh, moreover, there was also indications in Southeast England that there was an agricultural recovery during the 1330s and that there was better food and somewhat of a stimulated population growth. Yeah, so... So there was a mini recovery. After, there was a mini recovery. After yeah. the 20s, right? Yeah. 1320s. Uh, it's important to note that starving to death from, eat from eating absolutely nothing is a very slow and agonizing process. Observations of starvation victims during the plague, various historical periods suggest that extreme hunger leads to drastic loss of height and weight, shrunken and aged appearance. The skin will become white, abnormal hair growth, 
psychological symptoms as lethargy and depression. Eventually, the body organs shut down, and these were all recorded with the harsh reality of starvation during the famine, that this is what was recorded. During, mm, during a famine, victims often managed to find something to eat, not always the right, amount, the right food. But, but then this ends up causing various uh, food-related disorders and deaths. You're eating stuff that you're not supposed to eat or your body can't handle. An animal you're not supposed to and a leaf you're not supposed to. From the Great Famine of the early 14th century, reported instances of people uh, to food-related disorders, including um, starvation and digestive complaints. For example, a chronicler from St. Albans Abbey in England described how people suffered from a dysentery type of illness due to the spoiled feed, uh, food they would eat during the famine, leading to acute fever and other ailments. Imagine the food poisoning. of Turin in Flanders also noted in 1316 that people's bodies weakened due to the harsh conditions and true famine. An Irish um, <laughs> analysis mentioned strange diseases in connection to the famine. Another disease that was associated with the famine was something called ergotism, or it's known as St. Anthony's fire. It was consumed by eating grain that was infected by an ergot fungus, uh, which thrives on damp grain and reduced resistance. Uh, precise- Just imagine the mold. Yeah, so precisely the conditions during the Great fa- Famine, ergo- ergotism can manifest on, like, on these harvests, right? It affects the nervous system and causes muscle pain and spasm and leads to gangrene. Uh, victims also experience excruciating pain and, interestingly, uh, hallucinations. They'll start tripping. They're eating a fungus, after all. Yeah, for sure. uh, people have said that it was kind of like a ergot was a derivative of LSD. Oh, wow. mm, so people would just trip balls <laughs> while dying. Stuff. In normal times, um, the average medieval peasant's diet primarily consisted of bread made of a mixture of grains, uh, porridge, well water, ale if available right that was their diet right uh, better off peasants may also have access to some things like milk cheese fruits vegetables and maybe meat however during the early 14th century most europeans relied heavily on grains for sustenance therefore any disruption in grain or any increase in grain prices would have impacted the population it seems like mainly peasants were the ones who died from the famine yeah I don't feel like it was an upper class issue. Uh, you'll see that it will affect, ultimately affect the upper class, but usually Immediately it was the peasants. Fa- peasants who felt it the most, because they're the ones who are living day to day. During the Great Famine, there's an ample evidence of grain shortages and rising prices. In France, zero prices increased by 800% in the first three years of the famine. Chronicles celebrated their reduction in, thir- 1938, in 1318 as divine blessing. Uh, dramatic prices increases occurred in other regions, such as Antwerp in the Low Countries, where wheat rose by 320% in seven months. Uh, German chronicles still remember the unprecedented inflation of grain prices for more than a century later, which was considered like an astronomical thing. In England, detailed uh, records from the uh, Bishop of Winchester and the Abbey of Westminster indicate that the wheat harvest in 1316 was 40% below normal the lowest recorded in nearly a century and a half. Uh, Harvests from 1315 to 1321 were also significantly below normal. So, of course, the price of wheat in the market reflected those poor yields. The prices of wheat increased by 44%, above the average of the previous decade. Various goods like barley, peas, beef, mutton, bacon, cheese, wool, salt, all increased by 100% in 1315 and remained high the following year. Uh, of course, you have with animals, of course, like with beef, when there's no grain to feed them, 
certain dying you that kind of increase during the middle ages authorities had tried to limit the means to address food shortages and the responses were often improvised uh, following ancient practices local governments and national monarchies tried to ele- elevate food uh, scarcity by importing grain uh, from the most uh, affected community uh, to the most affected communities so they thought they, they had no experience on how to manage it as well so very new to them as well such as such an extreme and without the science to understand why yeah exactly and so there's so this solution at the time was like okay uh, you have 45% grain let's take 5% and send it to a place that has only 25% grain um, various challenges complicated I'm sure they thought the famine would only be a few years yeah or maybe like a, yeah at least like a few months uh, various challenges complicated these efforts towns like Bur- uh, Bruges Yepres and Tournay in Flanders attempted to secure grain imports but faced several obstacles. These challenges included conflicts with France, which imposed an embargo on all its goods in 1316. Uh, reduced harvest in areas that usually supplied grain, competition with other towns and governments for available grain, and the constant threat of piracy. Bruges, which experienced a lower mortality rate during the famine, achieved more success in part of due to its long-standing tradition of fo- solving food crisis, by, through seaborne imports. The city employed a battle fleet uh, to secure cargo of grain and wheat. I feel like I studied this. For Bruges? Famine. Yeah? This is all ringing a bell. Bruges also carefully, carefully managed the distribution of grain by suspending the free market yep. uh, and selling grain to licensed bakers at or below the cost. I definitely studied, like, because I remember even the death tax and all that stuff. Yeah. That's what I, I remember studying it. You said, did you take a medieval course? Was that the was that the Western civilization? Could be. These bakers were then obligated to make bread available for the populace at reasonable price. So the government suspended the free market. They controlled the bread or sure, the grain to make sure it's and to make sure that the bakers all get an equal share and that yeah. if they all produce it on a reasonable price. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in contrast, the English king Edward II. Now I don't know if that's Longshank. Could it be Longshank? Edward II? Mm. Uh, the, the old man from Braveheart who dies on the deathbed. Edward II. No, I think his father was... No, his father was Edward Longshank. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's the guy who he threw his lover apparently from the... <laughs> um, faced challenges while attempting to supply this strategically important important uh, border outpost of Berwick-upon-Tweed, which was besieged by the famine and engaged in conflict with the Scots. To keep in mind, England and Scotland were having border disputes, and the famine, I'm pretty sure, did not help the situation. Yeah, rather than focusing on that, they had to focus on the border. Exactly. Piracy distur- disrupted cargo shipments also through the Straits of Dover and, apo- and up the Northern Sea, along with England, England's eastern coast. Rumor has it that Vikings also started pirating um on the way mm-hmm. like they weren't helping each other no these attacks came from various sources including scottish raiders english pirates and free booters from regions as distant as the low country or from northern germany okay. um by the way do you know the word viking comes from the word voyager so a viking is a voyager oh interesting maybe it makes sense uh, ultimately, Berwick succumbed to this dire circumstances, and starving citizens betrayed the town. To so, the citizens betrayed the town and gave it to Robert the Bruce, that would be the king of Scotland in April 1318. They rebelled from the guy, the guy who's running the city, and they joined the allegiance with Robert the Bruce. Scotsman. Mm-hmm. 
Where's, do, where's William Wallace and all this? William Wallace was around the 12, 12, uh, 13th, 13th century. So the story of William Wallace, if he is real, is late 1200s. Okay, so so it's like 100 years before this. He missed out on the family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If he existed. Yeah. If. Uh, during the Great Famine, authorities implemented various policies to address food crisis. One of this was to uh, regulate the domestic food market. England took the lead in this endeavor, passing an ordinance in January 1315 through Parliament that set fixed prices on for slaughtered animals. For example, it established six shillings for hay-fed hay oxes, 12 shillings for a cow, and just over three shillings for a pig. Notably, grain prices were not regulated at this time because the poor harvest had not yet occurred. So the first thing, so we know from this, the first thing that was affected was the animal livestock. For sure. Uh, so England tried to set fixed prices, and that no one was allowed to sell over these prices. However, this measure appeared to be have minimal impact, and it was repealed by Parliament a year later, in January 1316. According to English chroniclers, the legislation seemed to do more harm than good. Many London butchers uh, chose to defy the ordinance and face imprisonment rather than comply with the low prices. So they couldn't even implement it properly. Consequently, the common people suffered from a scarcity of these commodities and voiced their grievances. Uh, the price fist, uh, a lot of people said that price fixing was, a, was against reason, as the prices should be determined by the abundance of the harvest, not from the will of men. Oh boy. Dur- free market stuff. Yeah. Was Adam Smith. <laughs> During times of famine, it was deemed better to pay higher prices for essential goods than to face the prospect of having nothing available when needed. Nonetheless, in 1317, the English Parliament made another attempt of regulation, this time targeting a product more closely related to the grain harvest and to the hearts of its citizens. What did it try to regulate that would have caused such a big commotion? My beer! My beer! My beautiful beer! Of course, that... You can't take the alcohol away. Mm, governments were also determined to crack down on speculators who sus- suspected of hoarding grain, uh, others essential items uh, to manipulate the market and inflate prices and profit immensely. So they believed that some people were hiding extra grain so they could just jack up their prices. This concern mirrored ancient practices during the substance crisis that often led to search for scapegoats. King Louis X of France issued on September 25th, 1315, that he, he began accusing uh, salt hoarders uh, of lack of kindness, compassion, and charities while pursuing a very increasing profits, people who were selling salt. Uh, he warned that anyone concealing goods would be cursed among the people and have ordered his officials in various cities to investigate and punish monopolies. Uh, illicit agreements, deception, and fraud related to salt ho- hoarding. So the government went full-on communist. Mm. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. But keep in mind, salt at that time was a good... Uh, like it was a, a substitute for freezers, right? Because if you salt your goods, you could keep them for longer. Yeah, true, true. Punishments, uh, mm-hmm. punishments included confiscation of all goods and other penalties as too severe as an example to others. These officials were also granted authority to search merchants' homes, premises, huts, ships, garneries, and store locations. If salt was found, hoarders were given up to eight days to sell them on a reasonable price. So it's not that bad. Or face confiscation. Uh, the action was a clear indication that the crown didn't, uh, if the crown did not act, the disgruntled populace m- would take matters into own, their own hands. They were worried that. Yeah, they're like, okay, listen, guys, we need to do this because. If not us, then the people. France was like, listen, I have a bad feeling that right. something like this could like happen in the future. With a, with a name like Louis. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, I don't know, man. He's like, I had a vision. <laughs> it's bad. 
In April 1316, King Edward II adopted a similar stance as France, addressing in a letter to the Bishop of Durham. Edward said that it was uncustomed dearth of, uh, the, the uncustomed dearth of grain in the realm, which had once known abundance uh, to the intemperate weather and ultimately to the sins of his subjects. He accused that many within his realm for hoarding excessive amount of grain, like just blame like, merchants. Like McCarthyism kind of thing. Like Almost, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, he accused many within his realm of hoarding any excessive amount of grain in their storage facilities and refusing to sell them, causing, as he quote, the poor and the beggars of our said realm to die daily from famine and starvation. However, Edward's proposed solution to the crisis was kind of weak, very feeble. He suggested that the bishop clergy use persuasive language to urge hoarders to sell their surplus grain. Okay. Still, he also hinted at the possibility Kill them of with kindness. Yeah. So, so just tell them, just give them a stern lecture. Yeah. The effectiveness of these royal commands, whether hoarding was occurring or whether it was an actual cause of high food prices, remains almost impossible to determine. Perhaps the, the practical impact didn't matter as much as to the monarchs as the appearance of taking an action. So no one really knows how effective it was or how it was implied in the face of these crises. Their primary concern may have been to prevent potential unrest among their subjects. This was the high property, uh, the high property. This was the high priority of both monarchs at the, t at the time. They're like, okay, we'll just give these laws that will do this to people. But enforcing them was a whole different ballgame. It's probably for a show as well. So the people can be like, okay, that's, the government's actually doing That's something. what a lot of people think, at the, like historians think, they were, that these decrees were just for show. No one really implemented them. Um, in both England and France, these efforts to address the famine crisis through royal commands and propaganda initiatives did not prevent the eventual, the eventual uh, reckoning and revolts that felt followed. Okay, Because, you know, nothing starts to revolt like hunger, right? Yeah. During the Middle Ages, it was expected that the private individual and institutions, especially monastic houses, would provide assistance to the social inferiors during times of famine. This was seen as both a moral duty and a means to prevent civil unrest. Monastic orders rooted in like the missions of Christianity were known for helping the poor. Abbot Elliot of Audrey Abbey in the Netherlands, for example, had a large cooking pot made in 1315 to, to be able to serve to serve pottage uh, to, be to beggars and the poor. I just said that had become legendary, right? Other alm houses went on great lengths to by constructing special ovens and furnaces to bake bread for those in need. So monasteries would open up throughout Europe to provide cooking services That's nice for so people. That's nice trying to help as much Yeah, as and to shelter as many people as possible during the time of famine. However, the generosity of these institutions were, was constrained by the harsh reality that the Great Famine also affected people from all I'm social sure classes. They, I'm sure they couldn't, yeah. Yeah, so at some point they started running out of food as well. Testimonies from the time revealed that men and women, whether powerful, middling, or lowly, old and young, rich or poor, suffered and died in great numbers during the famine. And they mentioned that even great lords uh, and religious houses reduced their courts, cut back alms, and reduced their households during the famine. In some instances, high mort uh, mortalities among the well-to-do are recorded, suggesting famine affected the rich as well. For instance, the, di the Diocese of Hereford in England saw a doubling of clergy death in 1316, in the previous year. It spared no one. Mm. The Diocese of Winchester also experienced the unusual spike in deaths during the six-month period, recording that more deaths in that time frame than typically seen in an entire year. So the deaths... That then, so the deaths doubled in six months that they would see in an entire wow. year. Uh, England documented a 25% increase in mortality among major land landowners. In the first five years of the famine, Belgium saw 24 males and female heads of various religious houses lost their lives during the same period. 
surpassing any um, records of such death. Another historical evidence of such uh, records was the something called the manorial balance sheet. So manorial is a type of system where landlords would own the land and sell them to their, and they would get people to work on their land with you paying to be on the land. It indicates... It's like you pay to work? Yeah. Or you pay to stay. But you work on their land. Okay. And eventually, like, the grain goes to him, but a portion stays to okay, you okay. type of thing. Surf them. Yeah. Uh, these records are also an indication of how people are living. They struggled with their high life. Like, so landlords would struggle with higher living costs and sharp decline in rental income as reflected that they would get nothing because there's nothing to <laughs> pay with. Households of lords and religious institutions were left with a stark choice drastically reduce their expenditure or find new ways to generate cash. They resorted in selling assets, renting out land, offering uh, yearly pension to subscribers, taking on debt through borrowing. Uh, for example, the Bolton Priory in Northern England adopted uh, measures such as reducing its household size. They would give up, they gave up two thirds of their households. Anything. Yeah. Uh, despite these efforts, eventually, Everyone went bankrupt. And they went bankrupt in 1320. Were we on part three or what? Yeah, yeah. I think so, part three. Okay. Um, a fate shared by several other religious houses, particularly those along the Anglo-Scottish border. Yes. <laughs> where the impact of the famine was compounded by the ravages of war. Overall, Europe's elite class was not in a position to be over, overly generous uh, during the prolonged and relentless yeah, famine. It, it, it's caught up to them, the famine. Yeah, yeah. As much as it took, wiped out the poor, it was coming to them. Now. It was coming to it, and they can't sell their houses anymore. The rent. Uh, by the way, I think um, this was considered one of the first uh, proper housing crises. Well, why would that affect the rent? Who, like, for example, you're you're like Could back then. Don't keep in mind nobility were renting out the lands to the uh, uh, to the poor, to the peasants, and, no and the peasants were dying, and so no one was. Like, no one was Buying the apartments of the landlords. Pretty much, yeah. Because okay. no one could afford it. No one wants to live there. And then when people died, you have land that's not being used. True. So this was kind of the one of the first major housing crises. For I sure, think for sure. The first proper, proper, proper housing crisis, I think, if I'm not mistaken, must have been the 1200s. But uh, that's another time for another day. In contrast, the common people, comprising mostly of the ruler peasantry and the urban proletariat uh, who made up the vast majority of the medieval population and bore the brunt of the famine's impact responded in ways that were typically were, that were typical during a subsistence uh, crisis throughout history. Now, how do people react uh, during these crises? The responses were rioting, thefting, looting, migration, religious rituals such as prayer and processions, right? Pro processions. And most notably, they started looking at other alternative food sources. Uh, the historical records from the Great Famine of 1315 to 1322 provide ample evidence of these various coping strategies. In desperate circumstances, when the choice is between stealing and starving, humans often opt for the option of stealing. stealing. Uh, you're, you're looking out for you. For sure. There are indications that crime saw an increase during the Great Famine. One scholar who studied at gold delivery rolls uh, rec rec uh, records of accessions held by traveling royal judges who passed judgment on inmates in local counties. In eight English counties, during the first half of the 14th century, found there a threefold increase in criminal indictments. Of course. Uh, between 1315 to 1319. It was survival mode for a lot of these people, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so, so the French crown also took action to combat rising crime during this period in, th- in March 1317 and issued to a bay of Mo instructing him to address highway robbery in the district. The thing is, though, um, uh, as much as it's shitty, even the, the powers that be have no solution. No. Because it's a famine. It's not like they're hoarding all the wealth. I mean, I'm sure they're hoarding the food. Like, yeah, yeah. They're getting the best of the, like, whatever is being produced, they're getting whatever is good enough. But it's still like they can't produce more food. Essentially, yeah. if, if it was up to them, they would produce. Just to keep people at bay. At bay. So it's like, they're literally, their hands are tied. It's either they will die, you know? So they also did crime of their own. Yeah, by hoarding and stuff. That's exactly. That's literally a crime, yeah. Yeah, so it's still survival of the fit kind of thing. But it's interesting because, like you said, at that time, what, like, not to, not to play devil's advocate for the ruling elite, but... Um, it's, it's the environment. Like what do you do? Like, how do you stop the it's rain? It's an ice age. Like, how yeah. can they control that? Uh, reports had indicated that in the country of Champion, <laughs> um, many malefactors uh, were robbing merchants and others, making their making the entire countryside unsafe to travel. A chronicler in England uh, connected the, chur- the surge in crime to the reduction in charity and household spending implemented by religious houses and great lords during the famine. He suggested that those who were accustomed to a more comfortable life and were removed from the courts did not know how to work by the sweat of their brow, and they were too ashamed to beg. However, driven by the desperation for food and drink, they resorted to theft and violence. So that was his conclusion. He's like, these people who steal are too uh, ashamed to beg. I, I could totally understand that. So they resort to cheat, uh, to steal. Yeah, literally, like, they're not by this. <laughs> When you're at that mode of hunger, you're not thinking clearly. That's where mor- morality has to take a wayside a bit and has to go into a gray area. Us, we're animals in the end. We have to go into that sink or swim. Uh, survival mode. Literally, because they're literally, by the, their, stomach, their body's starving. Yeah. You know, it's like... And keep in mind, when you're hungry, them, you're not thinking. You're not getting the same chemicals to your brain even. Yeah, exactly. So, like your brain is changing. Your brain's like, listen, we need something for this. We need whatever, energy. Whatever it takes. Yeah. Uh, and then, especially people have family and kids. That's true. That's even a bigger thing because now your your responsibility is to them. Exactly. Uh, Vega bondage characterized by begging also poised challenges for the authorities attempting to maintain order during the famine. This practice was often associated with theft. In Kent, in England, during 1316 and 17, for example, keepers of the peace conducted sessions and found that 70% of the investigated crimes involving the theft of food or livestock. Okay. Historically, historically, during famines, people took to the road for two main reasons. Either they migrated from uh, farmland or countrysides to urban centers in hope, of for, in hope of begging for food, or they wandered away from towns and cities into the open countryside, including mountains, plains, and woods, in a largest effort to find anything to eat. Both scenarios seem to have applied to the waves of vagabonds living off the land, going into the... Going back to being uh, hunters. Wanderers. Wanderers rather than hunters. Like more hunter and gatherers again. Yeah. There was a German chronicler who alleged that these individuals were amassing outside of towns, such as Magdeburg in central Germany in 1316, and at the gates of the northern towns along the Baltic Sea uh, in 1317. Chronicler from Lübeck noted that due to the intolerable famine sweeping from France to Saxony, many villages were left deserted because people either perished from hunger or gave up their possessions to seek refuge in foreign regions. These desperate individuals flocked to the coastal areas of Saxony and Slavic lands, begging in cities and towns, especially in Lobeck, where charitable aid was distributed repeatedly. However, many of them 
already weakened by famine, perished even after receiving nourishment. That's how out of it they were. Keep in mind by Probably the extended them rather than sir, saving them. Let's look at like let's take this for instance, and let's look at today's migration crisis. It's the same. It's the same old story, man. It never ends, and people act surprised by these migration crises. Like, bro, history is telling you're going to a country that's dealing with famine, destruction, nothing to eat, no, no, like sustenance, and then you're wondering why they're going, why they're moving abroad. Like, for example, with with what's happening with America with the with the migration caravan, mm. they're coming from countries, in part because of America's meddling, but in other parts because like. Of economic opportunity it's like these people here like it's not as extent to a famine but then even like look at africa the countries that dealt with famine yeah in like somalia and then decide to migrate or what happened sudan this is the common thread i've seen in every single episode we think we've changed when we haven't and no it's, it's been almost a thousand years now. and we act surprised when the same thing keeps happening it's the same like it's a fishbowl mentality every every single episode we've done we're like, this is still happening. This just happened. This will happen. And we're always, it's an, like migration is always an issue. And this is the crux of the podcast. <laughs> uh, whoa, whoa. Whoa, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, oh, wow. yeah. It's to understand how the things have affected us and how uh, things yeah. haven't changed. Yeah. 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 You know, the more the things change. The more they stay the same. A hundred percent. Like you see, like look at now, like look, remember the whole Sudan crisis? When they kept flooding into Egypt, and, and then now, Egypt media was like, um, "You know what's the difference now? Bigger population, so bigger numbers, and social media more exposure." Yeah, that's the only difference now. That's true, but like if you, yeah, like it's more spread out. Like back then, it was like within an, a certain block. Now mm-hmm. it's like triple, quadruple the numbers. That's true. Yeah, that's the only difference. Really, it's, it's a bigger scale. But again, it, by ratio of like the proportionality of population, exactly. So same. like. A if portion. It was, if it like, was one billion people, uh, and it's thirty percent of that, now it's like seven billion people. And thirty percent of that, yeah. One theory based on the historical patterns of migration during the times of scarcity suggests that beggars during the Great Famine did not merely seek refuge in cities, but continued eastward. So they would move east into the hinterlands of eastern Germany and western Poland. They hoped to be resettled on grants of land obtained through colonization efforts on these frontiers. So they're like, okay, East is kind of still a vast, empty land. It was their dream that they would just settle on land and just claim it for their own, uh, which involved displacing pagans or Slavic natives. Local town authorities might uh, might have also encouraged these large number of vagabonds at their doorsteps to move on. So even the authorities in France and Germany would try to convince them to go eastward to avoid the unrest often associated with them however there is little concrete evidence of the widespread of village abandonment in western europe during the famine as claimed by the lubeck lubeck chronicler elsewhere the fate of the wandering beggars during the famine seems to have been more grim uh, leading to the implementation of special mass burial measures in many towns to dispose bodies Uh, an abbot at saint martin mentioned in 1316 so many so many impoverished beggars were dying in the streets and others in other places that the town council hired individuals to transport the bodies to the surrounding countryside for burial. Imagine just walking and finding dead bodies Ever. because of the famine. Yeah. Similar records exist of for Flemish towns like Bruges, uh, which documented the number of bodies disposed of this matter. Like, there is no more space we need to take them uh, outside. Other chronicles and accounts provide further insight in the suffering of wandering beggars during the famine. Some chroniclers mentioned the stench and distressing sight of bodies being carried away for burial emphasizing the severity of the situation. 
Beggars in, the, uh, in their desperate search for sustenance often met a tragic end. People resorted to mass burial pits to manage the overwhelming numbers of fatalities caused by the famine and pestilence. In low countries, chronicles reported instances of the impoverished population succumbing to hunger and exhaustion while wandering through the village and fields. Uh, these unfortunate souls would often die on the spot. It was a harsh reality that medieval people, even during better times, did not embark on the journey with a sense of adventure and excitement, instead leaving behind the safety and support of the communities to face a potential death in lands, in unfamiliar lands as an act of desperation. Communities often led by church organized prayers and processions in attempt to implore God for improved weather. The practice of seeking supernatural intervention for atmospheric disturbances and weather-related issues has a long history, dating back to even ancient civilizations, yeah, right? Sure. Like the people living during the medieval times were aware of these ancient uh, precedents and used them as examples to inspire their practitioners to pray. The Bible now that had like had famine mentioned mm. and the floods and all that. So and God would all intervene, divine intervention. Yeah, yeah. so there's, it's in the <coughs> scriptures as well. So they probably thought it was a pop at the end of days. That's the... That's the the third horseman, right? Yeah. In times of crisis, humans often turn to spiritual means to influence natural forces, believing that appeasing or supplicating the divine would grant them some control over the elements. During the Great Famine, efforts were made to invoke divine intervention through religious processions, as you said. In 1316, on July 8, 1316, Archbishop Walter Reynolds called for a procession every Wednesday and Friday uh, throughout the southern province to pray for the suitable serenity of the air. Those who participated were granted an indulgence of 40 days remission of penance. Uh, in letters to fellow bishops, Reynolds explained that the calamities, including pestilence and famines, were seen as divine retribution for humid wickedness and sin. He acknowledged that people suffering, they were compelled to beg and face food shortages that led to death. Nevertheless, he believed that God, moved by their earnest prayers, could provide a remedy to end this famine. Chroniclers from various regions documented the church's processions and efforts during famine in London. Churchmen pro uh, processed barefoot every Friday, uh, carrying holy relics to avert famine. In northern France, uh, similar prayers took place, while participants, excluding women, uh, presumably clergy, uh, go completely nude while carrying their relics during industry. Similar regions' efforts were made in Germany and in other places during south of France. However, the most immediate concerns of famine victims were the next meal, right? And people didn't have time to pray. Uh, people facing starvation during famine resulted into four categories, right? Alternative plants, so they would eat acorns, grasses, wheat, nettles, anything, any wild vegetation they could find, a lot of fungus. Alternative meats, so people turned to horses, uh, camels, dogs, cats, rice, mice, reptiles, insects. And like even that. the car carcasses of domestic animals that were diseased or rotting. Um, yeah. yeah, they would even like, and this it gets worse. A lot of people would start eating non-food items: barks, twigs, uh, shrubs, leathers from shoes. Wow. They'll try to cook it and eat it. Dirt. People have resorted to eating to dirt. Even animal and human waste was used for food. Damn. And finally, and the most extreme case, cannibals. cannibalism. People have resorted to eating each other. Sure. During the first, during the Great Famine, diets in these four categories were indeed observed. Chroniclers noted, for instance, people eating raw cattle, uncooked grass, frogs, even the flesh of dogs was consumed. Uh, these peculiar dieters reflected the desperation and dire circumstances faced by the famine-stricken population, where survival took precedence over anything. 
during the years of the famine, people started to explore other ingredients in trying to mix with bread because of the grain. So they started saying, okay, we have a, we, we might start using alternative sh- like chemicals with bread. For example, in France, individuals resorted to mixing various grains like beans, barley, and whatever was available to, to make bread. Uh, regardless of these ingredients, in Paris, bakers extended their bread uh, with unappealing additives. Um, they started adding pig's droppings into uh, and pig's waste into like the grain to, ma- to mix for bread, to ferment into bread. So a lot of bread at that time was made from like... Um, the resulting bread was such poor quality that people... <laughs> like it was completely useless. You're not getting anything from it. An Austrian chronicler reported that in the 1317, wheat and rye bed became so scarce due to the meager harvest of these grains that year. Instead, people commonly consumed barley and oat bread as the yields of these crops were moderately better. So people started shifting to oats. In England, uh, in the besieged town of Berwick, residents were forced to take extreme measures to combat fasten. They, w- they began boiling and eating the flesh of any horse that just was found dead in the town, uh, ensuring that no part was going into waste. Every- sure a lot of livers, hearts, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, like, look, we take for granted, like we mock, unfortunately, a lot of people mock other people's eating, ha- other societies' eating habits. Um, oh, this country, they eat low uh, grasshoppers and this country eats uh, ab- the intestines of cockroaches. a cow, cockroaches and gizzards and whatnot could be looked down and frowned upon. Oh, you're eating the insides of a chicken. What's wrong with gizzards? I'm not, I'm just saying that some people could look down on that and some people look at chicken feet and they're like, oh, how can yeah, anyone true, eat chicken? True, yeah. But you keep in mind, yes, okay, what today we take as food, back a when lot, could have been a mean to survive because savor every, every exactly drop of their because of because of times of famine they look at a cow or they look at a and they survive probably by eating the gizzards exactly the and they're like don't just take the meat of a cow and just discard the whole thing there's things you could use with the with the insides they of all the cow have their own benefits yeah. same thing during like for example like a lot of the racism that came out against China because of the COVID thing. And the whole, oh, they eat bats and da, da, da. Yeah, okay, but how many, how many famines have China gone through throughout yeah. the years? Of course, like at some point, one of these are going to be a part of their diet because this is what people survived during a hundred year famine. Yeah. So with time, it becomes a part of the diet. Like in Egypt, we eat stuffed intestines, which yeah. I'm pretty sure if you mention to anyone abroad, they're like, that's the most vile thing I've ever heard. You, you stuff rice into intestines and cook it. Yeah. But who knows how this started? True. You know what I mean? It's like, this conversation's every vegan's dream. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, another thing was they included consuming horses They in England. They also talked about consuming dogs, like I said, dogs, cats, mice, pigeons. Some, uh, some even mentioned seeing people eating carcasses of dead animal in the middle of the street. People just find the dead animal and just go ham on it. Uh, they typically refrained from doing so afternoon because um, they thought that... Uh, if you saw if you saw an animal dead at like during noontime, the body is already beginning to decompose. Uh, the observations that dogs and ravens they so, probably observed ravens eating yeah. bodies, and they're like, if they can do it, we can do it. Yeah. Now the last one. Now cannibalism, one of the most disturbing, and of course trigger warning. We know that cannibalism is usually like two forms: there's ritualistic cannibalism, and there's usually survival cannibalism, right? Like they'll be stuck in like some frozen uh, mountain top, and, and one of their died so they resort to eating his body 
Now, cannibalism has a weird history in its own. Like, for example, it was usually deemed as a bar- the most barbaric thing someone could do was to consume another person's flesh, right? Uh, that's how the Romans described the Visigoths for the longest time. The barbarics, they eat other people's face and hearts and whatnot. Um, during this time, when similar claims were made. Uh, Irish annals reported that during this period, people resorted to cannibalism throughout Ireland. At the height of the famine in 1317, it was said that Scots and Irish inhabitants were so ravaged by hunger that they extracted flesh from the skulls of the dead people they saw on the road and resorted to consuming their own children. Wow. Mm. In England, there were reports of impoverished people stealing and eating children. And even strange. I guess the idea that children's skin is still fresh. Yeah, and even strangers. During the famine of 1316, uh, it was claimed that in France, uh, individuals have resorted to cannibalism in various places, including thieves devouring each other's skin while still alive. Similar allegations emerged in the Baltic Sea of Livonia and Estonia as well as in Poland. In 1317, with accounts of parents devouring their own children and children killing and consuming their parents. Some accounts also mention people eating the flesh of cadavers that they found on the streets. Uh, scholars have debated how, how to interpret these claims. It's been no, it has been noted that themes of cannibalism, particularly mothers consuming their own children, are to be very biblical. But we don't know like if people are just being hyperbolic. You know yeah, what they I mean? overdo, but I'm sure it was still Now, there. I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, Hansel and Gretel. The story of that apparently has roots to this great famine. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. So the fact of two kids wandering off to a witch's place, to a witch's place and she wants to cook the boy to get him nice and uh, fat so she could eat him. Yeah, yeah. This apparently came out during the famine and how the two parents, uh, the, pa- the father and the mother, kind of like abandoned the children because they can't care for them. Yeah, yeah, and then the witch is going to eat them. So, makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so back when... So now it's like a tale of don't uh, beware of strangers. Like most fairy tales, it's always beware of strangers, right? This time it was. But the origin, the famine, yeah. And it's like how beware of where you leave your kids because someone could eat them. Which will eat them. Mm -hmm. Especially during the height of uh, spirituality as well. Yeah. So so this is one thing to come out of the famine, the story of Hansel und Gretel. Uh, So regarding the accounts of cannibalism during the 1315 and 1319, historical interpretations have often varied. Some earlier historians written in the 1930s tend to to be inclined to accept the accounts that people were eating people off the street. More recent scholars writing in 1996 have been more skeptical on whether all these stories were true or not. For example, um, but despite the fact, even if these stories are not true, they still reflect the extreme suffering and horror that these people were facing. I don't know. And like, who really knows what happened? They're, regardless of the veracity of these stories, they illustrate severe psychological and physical toll of famine to, to the human. And the extreme, it drove people to do things they would never think of, imagine doing. You, like, I'm pretty sure you listening now, you can't even like you can't even fathom like how how far do you have to go to reach there? Of course, yeah. We can't like we could always hypothetically talk about it and like yeah I could see oh, it as well. We never know, no. Yeah. So the Great Famine was not necessarily um, like while not necessarily causing a significant and lasting due to the dark uh, mortalities, but it had a big cultural and social implications that would go beyond the immediate suffering. Right. One aspect that received little consideration, but until now it's also the bit more is the accusations of witchcraft. Now, during this time, uh, the medieval ages, people started blaming, tried to find what could have caused. They didn't realize it was climate. They didn't know it was climate. They didn't even know. Like it was definitely supernatural. So I'm like, okay, it's either God's really upset, or someone's fucking around with the devil. Either or. So whoever looked healthy, I'm sure, was the suspect. So this started the accusations of witchcraft, and this is one of the first times we get like proper 
almost like, like a witch hunt. Which ties into Hansel and Gretel as well. Yeah. Which again brings us to the story of Hansel and Gretel. Uh, so famine had a unique contextual element that it made uh, that it made it conductive to accusations of witchcraft. These elements included that the unpredictable weather, the shortage of food, animals started dying at random, uh, appeals to the supernatural. Like these things appeal to the supernatural. Of course, you need to start scapegoating someone, right? So you're looking at hoarders. For example, uh, if you even start people eating cannibalism, you're like, oh, this society has gone mad, right? Accusations against wristers have often involved claims that they had magically caused these weather conditions, such as hail, snow, and thunderstorm. They resulted in crop failures. They resulted in animal death because of sacrifices and whatnot. While such accusations of weather magic have, was re- were relatively rare, in the most reliable records of witch trials from the 14th to 15th, they played significant roles in the development of the witch trials. Accusations of weather-related witchcraft demonstrated communities that witchcraft posed a threat to the entire Christian Christian community, making it particularly urgent and serious crime to prosecute. The, uh, this aspect of witchcraft was essentially appealing to the learned elite, including clergies and judges, uh, who presided over witch trials and were more inclined to interpret various events as the work of the devil. It's, it it's makes the devil. sense because if God didn't respond to their prayers... Mm-hmm. Then it means that this is not God's work. Then it's the devil's work. Mm-hmm. It's not God's wrath. It's something more than that. Additionally, communities as a whole were more effective in advocating for action against suspected witches, which, when they believed that the entire community was under threat. The, this collective concern was more influential than the individual claims of being cursed or harmed by witchcraft. It's easy to say we're all affected by witches, right? We're all cursed. An example. So there was one common thread, top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Everyone was going through the same thing. An example illustrating the connections between famine and witchcraft was the case of Petronolia of Meath in Ireland, who was the first person to be burnt on the stake for witchcraft in Ireland in 1324. She confessed, likely under duress, to making magical potions mixed with disturbing ingredients. She was probably also... Tortured. Not just that, starving. Mm -hmm. She wasn't... uh, Thinking straight. She was very lucid in her thoughts. She said that she mixed ingredients such as brains and clothes of unbaptized boys, as well as the, decap- the head of a decapitated robber. And that's what she caused to fuck the weather. Similarly, in 1326 in Agen, France, uh, clerics and the laymen were charged with invoking demons to create adver- uh, adverse weather conditions using grisly components from criminals hanged in the gallows. It's crazy, huh? The first witch to be burnt on the sacred 1324, result of yeah. the famine. See, I'm told you, like, this is, this is like Tambora level of, hmm, you know what I mean? It was a big uh, turning point in, in history and literature and everything. But one that really goes under the radar. Mm-hmm. These cases dem- got overshadowed because of know, the. We, we look at, uh, historians look at century based stuff, not decades level. Yeah, and the bigger thing in the century was the Black Death. The longer the time, the more they cover. Mm. And the bigger the death, though. <laughs> like, we say this caused like a tenth of the population. The that Black Death what, caused a third of Europe? Yeah, it was even like. So, because we're still off of the 20th century, we look at it on a decade to... Decade basis, yeah. But now it's becoming to 50-year basis. You're back to your argument that this is going to be only a paragraph. This year is going to be a sentence. Whereas, so like 1300, it was 100. So, like, the Black Plague would take most, like, 60 pages of a 70-page thing. Yeah, well, this takes, like, five. ancient Egypt, we're covering a thousand years. In in 10 pages, yeah. Yeah, so it's... The more you go, the less you cover. These cases demonstrate a link between the hardships of famine and the emergence of witchcraft education, uh, particularly those related to weathering magic and something called mal- uh, malficia. 
The fear of supernatural ma- male- malevolence and the desire to protect the community from perceived threats contribute to the rise of witchcraft trials and the prosecution of individuals accused of practicing black magic or witchcraft during the late Middle Ages. Around the turn of the next century, specifically in same valley of the canton of Bern in Switzerland, a Swiss judge named Peter von Greyers presided over several cases that involved accusations of magically induced food shortages, incidents of bad weather, and also cannibalism. He reported that these cases to the Dominican theologian uh, Johannes Nieder, uh, who included them in his treatise, The Ant Heap, published in the 1430s, to what to look for. One of the accused, a man named Stadlin, was charged with using magic to raise hailstorms that caused severe famines and lightning strikes. Under torture, Stadlin confessed that he could summon the demon to aid him in causing these destructive weather events. He also claimed to have the ability, along with another witch named Hopo, to steal portion of the crops of, and other goods from his neighbor's field without being detected. Oh, so he's the one who caused the famine. Mm-hmm. Stadlin did it. Stadlin was also tortured into confessing that he participated in the abortion of human and sheep fetuses, and that he and his accomplices dug up the bodies of deceased infants, cooked their flesh until it fell off the bone, made an ointment from the remains, and drank the resulting liquid. Uh, in similar cases, uh, La Tour de Dupin in southern eastern France, An old man named Pierre Vallin uh, was tried and condemned by the Inquisition. He confessed under torture to raising storms by beating water with a stick, sacrificing his six-month-year-old daughter to the devil, and participating in cannibalistic rituals where children were eating at Sabbaths. Over the next two decades... uh, A lot of those people were being blamed now. Yeah. Even, by the way, it would break into the 1400s. By 1448 and 1467, a series of trials involving weather-related accusations occurred in Switzerland. It became the norm now. Yeah. I think weather-related, it's, Beca- it's a witch thing. For example, in Metz in Switzerland... Because it was so sudden as well. Warm, 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 and then cold. Cold. Surrounding towns in Lorraine in 40, 1456 uh, experienced an unusual cold weather because, keep in mind, it was the beginning of a little ice age. So the weather was still... Getting there. They, like, it was fluctuating, right? Like, until the 1800s, you wouldn't have normal weather. That's why there's also a rise of volcanoes and earthquakes and blah, blah, blah. It was a tumultuous period. Very tumultuous. Unusually cold weather and frost ruined grape harvest, which led to a dozen men and women being accused of witchcraft. Uh, they said the same thing, that they induced the weather to destroy the crops. So these cases illustrate how accusations of witchcrafts and di- diabolic black magic were linked to extreme weather events, right? And crop failures and famine during this period, leading to trials and persecutions of individuals believed to be responsible for these calamities through magical means. Of course, we know that uh, witch hunts usually would span from the 16th and 18th century. That was the biggest correlation, like that was the biggest jump of witch trials, right? The Salem witch trials and whatnot. Study was made, aim that for every time that there was a, there has been a close correlation between witchcraft prosecutions and seasonal rhythms of the Ice Age. So, for example, every time there was a cooler climate condition or there was a more harsher winter, there would be a spike of witch trials. It's Okay. So, so there was a correlation. So that's it. Uh, anything weather-related or crop-related? It must have been witch. Which, yeah. It's just like the movie The Witch, right? When the crops started going bad. And they blamed the daughter, they, 100%. They said there was something wrong with the... There was sorcery that's messing up their crops. Yeah. If you remember in the yeah. beginning, yeah. The crop... Uh, like, what's explaining this? Why are why is our grain... Yeah. They're cursed. It can't be the father, like, messing up his crops. In hindsight, if you think about it, even too, like a witch in the forest, that kind of stuff, it's all within that. It's within that realm, right? Like, a witch living in the forest is most likely a vagabond who left her town to look for some place so she could live off the land, right? So, 
In short, famine had conditioned religious authorities to believe that the natural elements could be influenced or manipulated through appeals to the supernatural. This transition from attributing such events to divine intervention to associating with demonic assistance was relatively a short one. But famine also led authorities to suspect certain individuals, such as grain hoarders, of effectively harming the community of their, for their own malevolent purposes, mirroring the accusations that oh, that would lead to future witchcraft, right? Witch, uh, witch hunts, sorry. Above all, fam- long before the witch trial generated rumors of activities such as grave robbing, cannibalism, and infanticide, which would become some of the most sensational and repugnant acts of witchcraft. If you think about all these ideas, dealing from corpses that you find on the street, uh, eating, corp- eating babies, killing your own child, these would all become the hallmarks of witchcraft, like witches, right? This is what witches do because and this is where it started from the famine, famine. Which things that were happening to a certain Exactly. Extent, yeah. Thus, famine left a tragic legacy for Euro- Europeans uh, persisting long after the memories of the great hunger had faded. You have to realize a lot of these people were also hungry, so they probably hallucinated that they associated with supernatural elements. That's true. So, like, uh, they probably saw someone in a different light because they were hungry. And it was like, they weren't thinking straight. The people were accused as well. That's true. That's 100% and the accusers true. accusers responding that way were also... So, it's like... You have they're all hallucinating exactly like we vulnerable. said like people would eat stuff that would give them like an LSD type of hallucination they begin to see shit it's not there because of hunger because of what you're eating you're eating wild vegetables and berries and and I'm sure uh, it's almost like how nowadays uh, the communists want to turn our children into women so we could not procreate yeah. <laughs> it's the same yeah there's always this hysteria like there's always an other against us right yeah, yeah. And it's looking for a scapegoat. It's no, pretty it's not, much looking no, it's for a scapegoat. it's not uh, witchcraft. It's everyone's trying to make you gay or trans or this. That's the new accusation. The world, the devil's work is to turn your kids into it's always, yeah. asexual beings so we don't procreate. It's, it's, that, it's that idea of... Um, There's always something. Think, what about, uh, would someone think of the children? <laughs> yeah, it's always about that. Yeah. <laughs> so... These aspects of famine-induced hysteria and despera- desperation contributed to the broader phenomenon of witch hunts during this period. I wanted to end on this, and now we're going to go into the last part, aim, the impact of the Great Famine. Now, we just spoke about it. The famine have, has, I think, a greater impact that we don't know, or we don't know that we tend to for, like forego, right? So, for instance, it was the first of a major catastrophe that would hit the 1300s. Now, the 1300s is famous because of the Hundred Year Wars that would soon start. And of course, it ends with the Black Death, the bubonic plague. Okay, so, so you'd have to they say that... must have been cursed in that century. Like Anyone would be like, we must be cursed. That's why, by the way, a lot of people thought the 1300s is the darkest... In Europe history. In European history, is the worst century in European history. The, so, so the, the Great Dark Fam- Age wasn't just bubonic plague, which everyone seems to... The reason why there was no uh, written history... It's because people kept dying. Because they, they didn't have the energy to... <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. For sure, there was no time to, for intellectual stuff. It was pure survival. So you it wasn't and people, that everyone went dumb or anything. And people tend in tend in big times of crises, like especially when it's lasting a century, uh, you revert back to like almost like a fetus position mentality-wise, which is to go back into spirituality and find because God. You're, you're close to death. Yeah, so you're going back into like an almost like a every day was a constant battle with to, life or death. Exactly. So you're not going to think about writing shit down. Yeah, you're not going to chron- you're not going to do achievements in science. Yeah, you know, no one has sure. time for that. And the thing is, um, so the famine was the first blow of that century, right? Of course, after that would be the Hundred Years' War between France and England. And then, of course, after that, we would be hit with the Black Death. Now, did, was the Black Death successful enough in Europe because of the famine? Maybe. Yeah, it must be. 
So there's this, so like, after the famine and before the Black Death, there was kind of a resurgence of population, right? The population slowly grew back together. There was a more period of like breathing room, right? Breathing space. And then the rats came from the east and fucked shit up. Yeah, but you got to realize that probably all those bodies they dumped on the side had so much disease. Exactly. And but, the rats ate those bodies. And it doesn't help. Yeah, so there's, mo- there's most likely mutations, right? So these diseased rats are and feeding rat- on other mutations. And they're eating on fucking diseased these bodies, bodies. Not just human bodies, the animal bodies. And keep in mind, there was no sewer system. So the idea is that the society was already weakened. Like, okay, yeah, there was a resurgence, but you're still kind of kind of a rebuilding phase. And I'm sure the and bodies then, haven't decomposed exactly. fully yet. And you got tumbled down again through the plague, which um, which made the plague easier to attack because you're already somewhat of a starving your, nation. And your immunity isn't there yet to fight off disease. Exactly. It's like after coming after the pandemic and everyone got sick all of a sudden because their immunity is not used to. Or yeah, like flu season yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Now, what's the greater impact is that, for instance, now we're beginning to understand the effect of climate on famine. And now we're taking into aspect and the Great Famine of 1315 is a good indicator of how much disease, uh, disease how much climate is affecting food and climate's a big discussion nowadays exactly but the opposite we're going through the warming phase again like the medieval warm period yeah and then you're going to be hit by an ice, ice age because this is i think the earth's way of fixing yeah. itself um so would you say that since 1300 we've been dethawing so the official like end got really cold so the official end of the little ice age 1800s and we've been warming and, now and we've been warming ever since now we're reaching to a peak of heat which may so it's up to another ice age. exactly so a lot of climate skeptics will say oh but the weather's already heating this is the natural cycle true but we're we're, but we're accelerating at such a level that we can't cope yeah, you know yeah, what i mean yeah, yeah. so what would take 100 years, years to do we're doing in 20 yeah, okay. uh so that's where we're going through now we're going through a warm period yes which is exasperated and this and really pushed forward it's like we're we're going through 100 miles an hour one cause one cause of the great famine that no one really talks about there was an explo- there was an explosive earthquake in New Zealand uh, earthquake a uh, volcano in New Zealand no one really puts a lot of stake on that they say it could have had it resulted in the weather conditions but based on what we know about but volcanoes. based on what no realistically it could have been just a f- shift of the wa- the ocean currents that's what we, yeah, yeah, yeah that we've talked about in the beginning a, a seismic shift kind of thing Exactly. And um, yeah, it's not like it wasn't Tambora level of volcanic activity. It's enough to accelerate something. It's enough to like, yeah, cause a kink in the system. You know what I mean? To to halt the gear a bit. So yeah, so that was the Great Famine. And like we said, one of the bigger impacts of Great Famine, unfortunately, was the beginning of the witch hunts. This this was the, if it wasn't the start of the witch hunts, it was clearly the precursor, right? It was the pre-witch hunt, you know? Um, Which would later become way 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 more worse in the following centuries especially in the 1400s and 1600s it would, it's interesting that um they mention how like historians are not looking at like climate fluctuations and witchcraft right it's also uh, not just that it makes us know guys whatever we lay foundations on now in terms of prejudice or uh you know like or metaphoric witch hunting could be continued to here 200 years later. Mm-hmm. So our actions now has further implications 
50 years down the line. Exactly. You don't know what... Uh, people what, can be like what they did in 2023. Laid the foundation for this catastrophic incident. in Catastrophic the, conspiracy, whatever, in 100 years from now. Of course, look what led and to the... It culminated... In that, in, in this. That, yeah, sure. But yeah, so that was another thing. Another thing we learned from the Great Famine is, of course, Eamon, uh Hansel and Gretel. Now you know where that tour, the origin story of that story came from, and it all started from the thirteen, the Great Family thirteen fifteen. <laughs> yeah, such an iconic story. And it's again goes to show you how like these kid story tales like actually have a very very dark oh, origin. Did. Yeah, they always You know, did, yeah. so like Ring Around the Roses is about the Black Plague, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, this one is about the, the Great, Great Famine. Famine yeah. Which now that we said the story, you kind of say, you know what? That's it's they're insane. Probably, they're probably stories told to kids to warn them. Yeah, like oh, by the way, don't wander too far. You so know, became kids sharing story. it with each other. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Anyways, so the next episode after this is going to be focusing on the bubonic plague, so, and we'll wrap up the 1300s, and then I think hopefully by then we'll be close to Halloween. Maybe we'll try to catch an episode with you in the country, aim before you go off to Kanaka. Yeah, Aim is going to go to Canada to fix the Canadian mishap. Yeah. <laughs> make, going sure, make sure they don't let any more Nazis, Nazis into the parliament. <laughs> you, every time you, by the way, every time you go to Canada, Canada has done something. No, last time I went to London, yeah. the PM, the stepped, PM down. stepped down. <laughs> uh, Aim is a fixer. I, to Canada to fix it. I was too late with London, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to save Trudeau. Best thing was that Gerard meme. I don't know when he's unemployed and he's in yeah. the unemployment line. <laughs> Yeah, that was jokes. Ricky Gervais meme. Yeah, yeah, from the office. Yeah, yeah, that's jokes. Anyway, so we'll try to catch a Halloween episode. Uh, maybe we'll do one like a fun one. We could talk about like a movie. Aliens. Yeah, we could talk about the movie Alien. Sure, one of the greatest sci-fi movies. I'm, I'm kidding me. Yeah, the actualization when he gets confused. <laughs> Anyways, guys, uh, this was today's episode of the Great Famine. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, follow us on our socials: Twitter, Instagram. Uh, TikTok, we're at a convo underscore BTWE. Yeah, dance for you there. Uh, it's it's only just it's only just the audio, man. But you know, by the way, TikTok is actually very like so far from all our social medias. Most of our engagements come from TikTok. Okay, then go on TikTok. Uh, I'm just saying. I'm a Chinese puppet. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Um, yeah. So follow us there. Uh, if you have any recommendations, we'd love to hear it. It makes it easier to pick episodes. And yeah, guys, we'll see you when you see you. Have a good night.